If you're enjoying Hatch, you can support the show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It can be a one-off thing. The money is going to be used to support the creation and the launch of season two. So if you're interested in seeing another season come to life, just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'd be so grateful. Hi, and welcome to Hatch, the podcast where we have conversations with creatives about starting something new. I'm Hannah Rothel, and this week I'm thrilled to have the best-selling and critically acclaimed author and mental health campaigner, Holly Bourne, on the show. After spending a number of years as an award-winning journalist, Holly worked for a youth charity on the front line and also as an editor. Holly was impacted by the real-life stories of the young people that she was helping, and so she started writing teen fiction to help educate teens on subjects like obsessive-compulsive disorder, feminism, and mental health. Holly is also very well known for her two highly acclaimed and best-selling books for adults, How Do You Like Me Now? and Pretending. Holly manages to be funny, thoughtful, and brutally honest, while also examining difficult subjects like abuse and trauma with sensitivity. One of Holly's career highlights includes a reader calling off her own wedding after reading one of Holly's books. More on that to come. She's also been called the Bridget Jones of this generation. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Hi Holly, welcome to Hatch. It is such a pleasure to have you. (laughs) It's lovely to be here. So you told me over email earlier today that you'd fallen into some weird internet hole (laughs) trying to enter your cat into an online cat show. Can you please elaborate on this? I don't know how or where or why, but I just, I am trying to start writing a new book. Um, I find starting new books really scary and I find myself doing strange things instead of starting a book and so now yeah my cat has been entered into the London virtual cat show month of September Um, I've paid £10 and spent the whole morning editing together video footage of her to fit the quote (laughs) oh my gosh so what kind of like talent does your cat have to be? Is it, is, was it purely like aesthetic? How cute it is? Purely how, yeah, like cat hot she is. It's definitely the more random thing I've done to procrastinate recently. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So Holly, I want to quote you on something that you said, which I thought was brilliant. The quote is, there are probably a few key books that you've read that you honestly believe changed you, improved you. And reading those books may have led you to making a number of small decisions throughout your life that paved the way for bigger decisions that all collected together and led you to this very point in your life. So I'd love to know what's one book that you honestly think changed you or improved you? Oh, just one. That's hard. It could be more than one. Okay, I'll pick two. Um, the first one is um, Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging by Louise Renison. Uh, I don't know if you had them where you grew up, but um, yeah, New Zealand just, we are far away, but we do yeah. receive. <laughs> well, I just don't know if the British humour like translated over there or how big they were outside of England. But um, yeah, they were a comedy series for teenage girls, and they I think made a completely giant impact on my own writing voice and style. Um, 
because they taught me that if you're a woman and you're writing about girls or women, you can be funny. And that at the time, considering I kind of grew up in this sort of weird time where feminism didn't exist or it definitely kind of gone dormant um, for a long time, like just the empoweringness of knowing, oh, girls can be funny. Um, girls are funny and I, I knew that intellectually I knew that when me and my friends were together as teenagers we would just make ourselves just cry laughed, laughing and doing crazy things especially particularly away from like the male gaze um, and I had never seen that reflected until I read those books and then all of my friends were obsessed with them as well I feel like we they kind of bonded us forever as friends so um, definitely that book and then the other one, I feel like it's controversial to say this now because she's gone on to write lots of books and say lots of things that I don't personally agree with but um putting that to one side of uh, the female eunuch by Jermaine Greer I read in my early 20s and completely drastically altered the course of my life and in particular there was one line in it where she's talking about the sort of societal and cultural pressures on a woman to get married and how they think that that will make them happy and there was this one line that I read where something like um a married woman who's married to somebody who's basically ceased to communicate who's just staring at her husband's head behind the newspaper every morning is lonelier than a spinster in a rented room will ever be and I just that just bedded in and yeah. I think changed a lot of my relationship decisions over the course of my life and I then went on many years later to write a book trilogy for teenagers called the spinster club series <laughs> um, about a group of girls finding feminism and starting a grassroots feminism um, gang at their sixth form college and those books have gone on to spawn feminist societies and sort of secondary schools around the country and and so it's weird that me reading one paragraph led me to then later on write one book then then that book has inspired other girls to start their own sort of feminist campaigns and it's just that yeah the power of words. I didn't realize that that line was like the catalyst or like the seedling for which the Spinster Club series was born out of. So you grew up here in the UK. It just sounds like you had this incredible family growing up who were super supportive and inspiring. And you went on to study a BA in journalism studies at Sheffield University and then started your career as a news journalist. Um, and during that time as a news journalist, you were nominated for Best Print Journalist of the Year. But it's also interesting, as I've heard, you also really disliked being a journalist, yet you were obviously very good at it. So I'm interested to hear more about this. It was, <laughs> I was really ashamed of being nominated for that award because I hated my job so much and I hated being oh my God. so much so when you're awarded for something that you hate about yourself it was yeah an interesting um thing to go through I mean I think it's important to state that you know news reporters are a hugely vital part of democracy and the job that they have to do when done ethically and there are lots of ethical journalists out there and I tried very hard to be one it's like one of the most important jobs that there is but you have to have a certain temperament to do that job effectively. And that temperament mm. I did not have, i.e. I got very upset whenever anything bad happened to anybody. I think my over-empathy and sort of the fact that I kind of feel other people's feelings probably more than is appropriate meant that, of course, the human beings that I was coming across and interviewing really warmed to me and felt that I was genuine and I was but then I also 
they would then open up to me and I'd get these amazing interviews, but then I would still have to write them up and and put them in a paper that was sold for money. And I just, so I had this like hack, which I didn't even want to have. So I'd turn up at somebody's doorstep and be like, I'm so sorry, I'm here. This is awful, you're okay, I'll leave you alone. Um, which might be a bit more different to a kind of old school journo hack who's just kind of like, heard your son is dead. Can you please tell me about it before the rival newspaper does also, you know? And, and so, of course, I always got invited in. I always got the scoop. You like sat down for the cup of tea. They're like, can you stay for three hours? I've got biscuits, yeah, and cookies. I did. Yeah. I did. And I'd sit there and they would cry and I would cry mm-hmm. and I would hug them. It was like totally inappropriate. <laughs> Not what you should. And, but of course, the whole time I was recording it and they knew I was recording it. I was a journalist, but, but of course, I got these incredible stories and incredible quotes because I was having this amazing human connection with someone but then I was then putting it in a paper I just hated it yeah um, and then so uncomfortable and so yeah getting nominated for award for that I was like I don't I don't want to be good at this <laughs> was there a final straw like was there one story which made you kind of go I actually can't do this anymore like what was the catalyst for you from going from there to working at the youth charity yeah, it was an accumulative effect. It was like story after story after story of bad things happening and this kind of general exhaustion. You And you work like crazy hours. And I think I was working 50 hours a week for £14,000 a year. It was, you know, you're just broke and just at the office all the time. But I had this quite unique experience in that I had managed to get a job at my childhood local newspaper. But it then meant when I started becoming a a news journalist sometimes I knew people that were in the news stories because I it was my community that I'd grown up in and um, I think the final straw was I actually had a friend of mine that I had grown up with um, got killed in Afghanistan oh god I'm sorry Um, well it's not okay but you know it's and that was obviously a massive story massive local story and I remember being asked it'd be really good if you could do the interview because you knew the family. And just the fact that I had even had that mentioned to me, I was like, I can't, this is too much. And um, quit a job in a recession, which was, a, you know, an incredibly stupid thing to do. But um, luckily, I managed to get another job. <laughs> yes. You went on to work at a youth charity. And by the sounds of things, you loved your time there. But I can also imagine it would have been really confronting and difficult at times too because of the because of the issues that you were that you were dealing with um through your work a lot of sexual assault and abuse and and trauma and i know that that role has impacted you a huge amount and also the stories that you choose to tell so i'd love to hear a bit more about your time there yeah so it was initially I felt like I was growing my soul back. That's what I said when I got that job. Just Sunday night was not a problem for me. I was like, work tomorrow, amazing. I love my job. I love my colleagues. The five years I spent working at this youth charity were the most transformative five years of my life. And the people I met, the lessons I learned um, about things like sexual violence and about mental health, like these, you know, it kind of just gave me the framework to understand the world. And I was doing something good about it. I was helping people. In terms of sort of the kind of psychological impact of the job, I was actually quite protected from that for the first three years because I was only working there initially in a journalistic capacity. So I would write all the kind of advice and information for young people. So I'd interview, you know, experts on addiction or psychology or 
eating disorders or how to get a job finances and then I would use my sort of journalism skills to write kind of engaging content that was SEO optimized so that young people were googling their problem they would find this trustworthy place so of course so I was dealing with sort of dark issues but in quite a kind of productive and slightly detached way yeah and I started to get really interested in the frontline services and they started training me up to start doing some shifts and towards the end, I was kind of doing 50-50 split. And it was only when I was doing the shifts that I started to realise that they, it took a toll. You know, people telling about the horrible things that have happened to you, them all day, every day. And, mm. um, you know, it, it's like waking up from something that you can't go back to sleep to. Um, and in particular, which sort of inspired my most recent adult book, Pretending, it was just the sheer scale of uh, sexual violence against young girls but that was just the thing that I just could not cope with it was so many numbers so so many days the thing that opened my eyes doing that job was realizing that sexual violence against women almost solely happens to women with somebody that they're in some sort of pre-existing relationship with so I think I grew up thinking rape and sexual assault is a very terrible thing that happens to you if you're walking home late at night and you take the dark alley um, and there's a man with a hammer lurking you know and and that's when your this horrible thing happens to you and that's what I thought rape and sexual assault was and it was only through doing this job and then starting talking to the experts where you realize that over 90% of women and girls are raped by somebody that they know and are statistically most likely to be raped in your own oh house and that so this you know, I'm not saying if you go out at three o'clock in the morning and go yeah I'm safe I'm safe but actually you're most likely to be abused by a man who says he loves you rather that's in the vicinity of a current partner an ex-partner or a family member uh, or a friend just pushing the boundaries and I saw that evidenced every single day in that job because it was girls coming to me confused or coming to the charity confused because their boyfriend had done something to them but they were like, but he's my boyfriend, so I don't really understand. And when we talk about mental health in young women, we never talk about sexual violence and abusive relationships. It's always like, oh, they're on Instagram all the time. And I'm like, no, one of three of them in, in an abusive relationship. <laughs> like, screw Instagram. God. Well, was that a difficult decision for you when you made the choice to write about some of these really difficult and, and dark topics? Not at all. I never sit down and go, I'm going to write this a book about something really dark. I just, whenever I sit down to write any book, I'm like, I want to tell the truth about this character. And this character is a figment of my imagination, but I still want their journey and their story to be truthful. And of course, that character will have darkness in them because that's unfortunately what the world is like. Mm. I really believe that there is space for humour with this darkness and actually humour can really kind of take the edge off the darkness or make the darkness more accessible yeah in my last book pretending it's about a, a woman struggling to love because she had been previously raped by a partner and she just feels she's like too damaged to be loved and feels like the moment she reveals to men what's happened to her they're like ooh. whereas actually if a man's going on tinder one in four women that he's going on a date with will have trauma so there's nothing actually wrong with april my character at all unfortunately she's quite sadly normal um so it's very dark but 
the book's full of jokes and laughter and you know if you're a victim of something terrible that doesn't mean you just sit rocking back and forth in the corner for the rest of your life you know you you laugh you make jokes you sometimes make jokes about your trauma um, you have a career you have friends you have you know a good time but you also have the lasting impact of this terrible thing that happened to you totally and it feels like also when you're bringing in humor into your stories like it's never about the trauma itself like it's a it's the surrounding events it's like you said like her bantering with her workmates and that's really funny or like this funny thing that happens with her and her best friend or whatever and it's the humors in those parts so it's still being so sensitive to the trauma and the the issue itself and I think you do that so very well so speaking of bringing humor into your stories I'd also love to hear a little bit more about how you start your stories in the first place. Is it true that you can't start a novel without knowing exactly what the first line is going to be? Like that is essentially the prerequisite for everything to follow. That is true. And I think that's why my cat has currently entered into an online cat show. (laughs) (laughs) She hasn't found line number one. I'm just, you know, been going on long walks, but it's just not quite hit yet but um yeah I, I tend I feel like any book I think can be reduced to its first line like it's just saying so much and yeah to me, the first line has always come first and if I look on at that first line you know exactly what you're getting from one of my books by that first line so I'm I'm struggling I thought I had the first line and then I was just chatting with my editor yesterday and we're like no it's not the first line and thus thus the cat shall come out on top in September's <laughs> London competition she doesn't win mate I don't know what I'm gonna do I'm invested emotionally into this <laughs> so good so like when you get that line does the plot then just kind of flow or does that kind of like where, where does the character come into that process I think the thing is to me a first line if you've got the right first line for your book you know your character from that first line you know generally what the book is going to be about so the first line for pretending which I've got a lot of heat for is I hate men (laughs) And, and it's again you just straight away you kind of have an idea what's coming like it's probably a woman and she's probably angry and and it and it what was some of the feedback that you got from I hate men as soon as you were published I was worried I would get a lot of abuse for it most people have actually just have loved that first line and that first chapter in general um because they do realize it's a setup to a joke which is you know she says she hates men she goes and gives this like massive long rant about all the things that she hates about men and then and then the end of the chapter ends with the guy that she fancies messages her back and she's suddenly like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, like, don't worry about it. And she's just, it's all been forgotten. Forget everything I just said. Basically. So, Holly, I'd love to talk a little bit about your creative process when it comes to writing. In one interview, you said that you write a minimum number of 2,000 words per day. Do you have any other tricks or habits up your sleeve to help you with your process? I can only say what works for me and it's it's hard when you give writing advice because I know that I've listened to so much writing advice and then freaked out because that's not what I do and then I'm scared I'm writing wrong. To me it's like whatever you were doing that means you're getting words on the page if that's working for you that's right as long as nobody's getting hurt because as long as you don't have to like sacrifice a human being in order to write like you know 10 pages but 
basically if you found something which means you're able to sit down and get the words out which is the most hard painful heartbreaking shameful odd it, you know the act of creation is just humiliating and boring and hard and a slog so I wait for my first line and then once I sit down at my computer and go okay that's it I force myself to yeah 2,000 words a day five days a week I give myself evenings and weekends and that's not all year that's only when I'm writing a manuscript so at most I'm behaving that way like four or five months a year the rest of the time I'm editing or doing events or entering cat competitions um, the thing that works for me um, is I don't read back any part of my manuscript until I have completely and utterly finished the first draft. So I'm not allowed to read back until I've written the end. So will you be writing and you won't go back and like edit paragraphs necessarily? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. So when I actually come back to read a first draft, which is always a terrible experience because first drafts are always <laughs> rubbish, um, I'll be reading stuff that I wrote four or five months ago and I can't even remember writing it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that happened. <laughs> To me, it's just because first drafts are so rubbish in, for me. And I think if I'd sent off any first draft ever, I'd never be published. And I don't let anyone see them until they're about I'm about three drafts in. But I just know I'll read it back and it will be awful. And then I'll just lose faith. And you just need to keep the faith up to finish a novel. It's just mm. a massive act of dedication and self-belief and determination it's like running this this marathon in your brain with yourself alone to me it's like just don't look back <laughs> just how bad it is just keep going and then by the time I've written the end I've got about 80,000 90,000 words and I'm like this is terrible but actually I've invested five months of my life into this so I should probably try and do something with it rather than reach 30,000 words and just lose so much hope I just give up which I think mm. is a really dangerous part for most novelists. They always sort of say that after the first third of the book is when you just kind of go, oh, this is rubbish and this idea is not working and I'm ruining it and I've got this idea for something more exciting that I think will be better. And that's a dangerous place to be in if you write novels and you need to just get out of that headspace and keep going and believe in your idea. So then when it comes to writer's block, do you you purely write through it then? You're just like, we've got this we've got this target for today and we've got to we've got to reach it yeah I go for long walks by myself and I'm having to actually get myself out of the habit of listening to podcasts when I walk because I realize it's been really bad for my creativity and I've started to get to the point where I'm just scared to be left with my own thoughts and I just well you know because you, you used to just walk along in life but now there's podcasts and they're great and there's so many good ones listening to you like this one um I'm, I'm gonna cut that and <laughs> put that up to the world <laughs> I have only started to do that I think like this year starting to really listen to podcasts on a walk and I've realized it's actually starting to interfere with my creative process because I use that time where I was just putting one foot in front of the other and just wandering around and thinking about things that actually the block would unblock but yeah I do tend to write through it and that can it works because you do have words at the end of the day but it means sometimes my first drafts end up ridiculously long because I've just written myself to a massive hole and then I have to write myself out of it my last draft turned out at 140,000 words and it's a YA book and they're not supposed to be more than 90 max. I wrote 50,000 words more, just like multiple dissertations. And that was the result of me just, I'll just keep swimming. But 
but the book exists so it's like whatever you need to do to get yourself over the finish line so I'm interested in the fact that you decided to start writing for young adults before you started writing for adults what what was the draw card for that um just to me if you're a creative person who wants to write about people like adolescence is just where all the good shit is (laughs) I've read so much going on even if you just got the most boring teenager in the world who just had nothing happen to them and just had this like very like magnolia existence very vanilla yeah like yeah just nothing and they're just at school they're still going through the most incredible transformation and like their entire brain is rewiring they're starting to realize that their parents don't know what they're doing anymore and how scary that is they're starting to realize that the world is unfair so if you take like that and add somebody who's got an abusive boyfriend or somebody who doesn't get on with their mum, or you know you just like the stories are just so rich i just think it's just such a transformative part of all of our lives and there's a part of our lives that we never forget. They're so vivid, the memories from teenagehood. Like, I think about my teenage years probably every day. I don't know if that's normal. No, it is. It's um, There's neuroscience to explain it. It's called the reminiscent bump. Amazing. And Tell me about this. So it's, it's a side effect of what's happening to your brain when it's rewired in during puberty. So your brain starts changing from a child's brain to an adult brain. And there's kind of two side effects of that is when you become as a teenager, like hyper aware of social stimuli, who's popular, who's not popular, am I important, am I not important, who's gotten off with who you just basically kind of know everybody in your school and what they're up to. And that is an evolutionary thing, because obviously adolescence used to be when you stopped being looked after by the group and started having to become a part of a group. And obviously, being approved and accepted by the group was linked to your survival, like how much food you get. So, so teenagers are just completely aware of each other and how everyone else is doing. And then on top of that, they found as just a kind of side effect of this rewiring, you make memories stronger at this point in your time than any other time in your life. And that's called the reminiscent bump. Um, and any link any memory linked to your identity of sense of self is like leaves the biggest stain. And that kind of goes up until like your early 20s, but never more than when you're a teenager. So that's why I can't really remember being 27. But you ask me, what were you doing at a year nine disco? And I'm like, oh. being sexually rejected by every boy in my year. <laughs> and this, and Jenny got off with Adam and Tap got off with so-and-so. And I was wearing this outfit and this perfume. And my dad came to pick me up early because I cried. Yeah. And it, just I'm there yeah to me I just there's so much to to write about that time and also I just believe that teenagers can get so much out of stories at that time if you give the right teenager the right book it changes their lives it's it, I really really truly believe that I've, yeah do you get great do you get like I was gonna say letters but people don't write people don't write letters I don't know like Instagram messages or just like contact from your readers to to sort of share the ways in which they've been impacted by your stories they must feel so heard and seen I do I do it's it's wonderful it's the best part of the job the best thing is for spinster club series that I wrote about this group of 
feminists because Germaine Greer wrote a book when I was young that I read and like that ripple impact is yeah I do get messages from girls who have started their own fem socks at school and they're like campaign I don't 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 I completely lose it I actually did an event because I'm an ambassador for women's aid now so my job's for them is to kind of go around and help educate young people about healthy relationships and I did an event before lockdown actually in February at um, Bristol University and because I've kind of got so old and been doing this for so long I actually had a gal come up to me after the talk and I think she was in second year of university and she was like I read your books when I was a teenager and they've inspired me to be a feminist and that's why I'm studying law and she was like, because I want to do a law degree and like defend women who have been abused and like fight for law change. And I was just, <laughs> and she was crying and I was crying. And it was just like, too it was one of the best moments of my life. I know, I was just like, this is madness. And so I, that's why writing for teenagers is just magical. I also wanted to ask you about an important thing that you told me earlier in the week over email. I asked for two of your career highlights. And you said that one of them was being on Woman's Hour and another was when a reader called off her wedding after reading your book. Can you please elaborate on this? It happened a lot with, um, it was my adult debut, How Do You Like Me Now? Which is a book following a woman basically trying to leave a, a terrible relationship, but she's in her 30s and she thinks this is her only shot. And um, it's like looking at all the reasons why somebody stays. And I basically wrote the book because I was like, I just really want people to read this and dump their their trashy boyfriends. Not if they were in a happy relationship. Like if you're happy and healthy, I'm like, this is amazing. Love is amazing. Love is why we're on the earth. This is great. But if you are with someone, you don't know why, and you just feel like you're being eroded away and you're too scared to leave because you're scared you won't find anyone better. Like all these, you know, kind of dark, scary, daft reasons that people throw the logs of their life onto the fire waiting for things to get better when they could be choosing themselves and and in that potentially then opening up finding a better partner yeah I just wanted a book that might hurry people along and then it's been wonderful to see how many emails I have got of people who have read how do you like me now and consequently left their relationships and in the most extreme version was the woman who cancelled her wedding um, <laughs> But, you know, and what I love about the How Do You Like Me Now and the kind of story that the book's gone on to have, this is what's so weird about producing a book. You have no idea what life it's going to have and what decisions people might make as a result of reading. It's like this weird, beautiful, quite daunting magic. But lots of women have bought that book for a friend. Is there a way of kind of going, you might want to read this. (laughs) I think if you've got that friend who just will not leave him. It's like, oh, I heard about this book. And because it's not a book called Dump Your Boyfriend, they're like, oh, this is nice. Thank you for the present. And then it's like this kind of backdoor activism of you deserve more than this. That's so great that the book can sort of be used as like a tool for women to help other women to figure out that they deserve better. And on the wedding front, is it true that because one of your characters hates weddings, you often get invited to weddings and there's a caveat from your friends or whoever it is that's inviting you of but you don't actually have to come to my wedding. There's no pressure. I know that you hate them. And you're kind of like, I'm I'm not my character. I actually love weddings. Like my books are not memoirs. 
It is, yeah, but people are terrified to invite me to a wedding after that book. And I'm like, I really hope I'm nicer than Tori. Like, I like her as a character. She was really fun to write, but she's deeply unhappy. And that is why she finds weddings so hard. Yeah. Um, and I am slightly offended when somebody's like, do you want to come to my Hindi? You don't have to come. I know you hate Hindi. So I'm just like, of course I'd love to come. I mean, if it's 800 pounds and in Cyprus, like maybe not, but <laughs> that's for other reasons. <laughs> this is so true. We're all so done with the excessive hens do. So to finish off this conversation, because I'm conscious of time, there's just a few short questions as part of the final words section of this podcast. So Holly, what other profession would you like to have if you weren't an author? Um, I would love to be like yeah, a psychologist or a counsellor. Um, and I do actually do evening classes and counselling skills. I just find the inner like realms of the human brain just so fascinating and the stories that people tell themselves about who they are which is so wrong and so damaging and just how do you get them to tell themselves tell themselves a different story like I would love to have that job um that's my backup plan (laughs) could you describe the industry in three words of publishing industry yeah (laughs) posh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> posh and posh this couldn't be more perfect Sorry. leave it at that that does not need anything further what are you not very good at um I'm not very good at schmoozing you just hear a lot of the time that you know you, you're supposed to go and this person's important so you should go and be nice to them at the party and I'm just not like that at all like, I get very excited when I meet human beings that I like and get on with and I get very excited if I meet human beings who've created art that I like you just like if you like somebody's art you're like you're likely to like them as a person and so I've somehow sometimes accidentally ended up with really powerful friends but that's just because I'm like this person's really awesome like I really like them but then there's a part of me that if I think somebody's a dick I just can't be bothered so yeah going to a party to kind of see what I can get out of it and what connections I can make it just like it literally makes me feel physically sick what's a song you'll never get sick of all too well by Taylor Swift uh, I think it's one of the best pieces of storytelling um, in music ever. I I won't geek out, but like the way it builds, the layers, just the metaphors, just amazing. What is your greatest fear? Um, I think accidentally being horrible to someone and they're just seething and you just don't know that you've even done anything wrong like that. The same with like committing a crime, like being accused of a crime you didn't commit. Like I find Shawshank Redemption really hard to watch because I'm like, what would you do? What quality do you most like in another person? This is such an overused word now, but it is authenticity. Um, People who just know themselves um, in a genuine way, not a defense mechanism way. So then it's just like, I just tell it to the people's train. That's who I am. And I'm like, no, 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 it's just stuff that you've not dealt with. That's not actually. (laughs) Some more things to explore there. Yeah, but somebody be like, literally, again, if I'm at a party and somebody comes up to me and they'll be like, oh my God, I'm so bad at talking to people. This isn't, this is just awful. Like, don't you just wish you were home in your pajamas? I'm like, yes. And just You're like, we're going to be really good friends. I can see it now. I'm going to enforce it. Yeah. Yeah. People who are appropriate levels of vulnerable, I like. You're speaking to the 16-year-old Holly. What would you say to her? Don't start smoking. 
took a really long time to quit. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. That was. It's uh, good advice. Would save some money also. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I did quit, I spent the money that I was spending on cigarettes on lunch every day. So I just got myself like a six quid lunch every day, um, which I couldn't couldn't afford to smoke, couldn't afford to spend six pounds on lunch. And I just had the best year of just the best lunches. <laughs> that Pritt sandwich yeah. never tasted so good. And you could have some crisps and sometimes fit a juice in and it was still cheaper than 20 cigarettes. And I was just like, I'm just loving not smoking anymore. I'm just going to drink free quid juice and just be very happy and not die of lung cancer. <laughs> so many benefits. Well, Holly, it has been so great um, to have you on hand. So Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was lovely to be here. <laughs> I'll let you know how the cat does as well. <laughs> Please do. I'm going to see if I can subscribe for regular updates. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Hatch. If you're enjoying Hatch, you can support the show through the Acast supporter feature. Donations received are going to be used to support the creation and the launch of season two. So if you're interested in seeing another season come to life, just hit the link in the show notes to support now. See you again next week for another episode. Bye.